0: I'm Avery Arden, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. This past Sunday was the third Sunday of Advent, which centers joy. And Christmas Day draws near, mere days away now when we celebrate God's impossible incarnation into created life, their transition into human existence. But how can we center joy? How can we celebrate the birth of Christ in such a time as this, when apocalyptic violence afflicts the land where Christ was born? The Reverend Dr. Munther Isaac, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Christmas Church in Bethlehem on the West Bank, offered up this lament and rebuke in a sermon on October 22nd of this year. He preached, Hell is a reality in Gaza today, our Palestinian siblings are in it now. What is happening in Gaza is not a war or a conflict, but an annihilation continuous genocide and ethnic cleansing through death and forced displacement. World political powers are sacrificing the people of Palestine in order to secure their interests in the Middle East. They say our annihilation is needed to keep the people of Israel safe. They offer us as sacrifices as we pay the price for their sins with our lives. Where is the justice? In the face of this suffering, this international shame, our governments aiding and abetting of genocide, how can we celebrate Christmas as usual this year? The answer that Christian leaders in the Holy Land have come to is that we can't. They called for a cancellation of the massive Christmas markets, the extravagant services and decked-out trees that usually light up the Holy Land this time of year. Instead, they ask that all take time to mourn and to advocate for all the lives that have been lost and all who continue to live in fear and suffering right now. Now, I don't know of any church here in the U.S. that is completely canceling Christmas this year, nor do I think that's necessarily what is needed. Rather, how can we use our Christmas worship, our carols, our family gatherings to uplift Palestine's lament and spread seeds of compassion and action wider? Can we make space for grief and anger? Can we be brave about speaking truth to loved ones? Can we spread some Palestinian art and culture during our get-togethers? There is a worship service that some churches hold this time of year that would be ideal for this sort of thing. Typically held on December 21st, the winter solstice, it's the service of the longest night, also called Blue Christmas. This special service offers a chance for lament and loss in the midst of consumerist Christmas chaos. Create a space like it for yourself at home. Make time to share sorrow with loved ones, with Jews and Muslims facing rising hate across the world, and with our Palestinian siblings facing genocide. Pray with Rev. Munther Isaac, his Lament for Gaza, adapted from Psalms 13, 22, and 88. My God, my God, why did you leave Gaza? How long will you forget her completely? Why do you hide your face from her? In the daytime I call upon you, but you do not answer. By night we find no rest. Do not depart from the people of Gaza, for distress is near, for there is no one to help. O Lord God of our salvation, day and night we have cried before you. Let our prayer come before you, incline your ear to our cries. We call upon you, Lord, every day. We stretch out our hands to you. To take this time for grief, African-American poet and essayist Ross Gay argues, isn't even at odds with joy. Maybe a more subdued Christmas this year, where we refuse to hide suffering away, will actually give birth to a truer joy in us. Because this is how Raske imagines joy in his book of essays, Inciting Joy, where he writes, What if joy is not only entangled with pain or suffering or sorrow, but is also what emerges from how we care for each other through those things? What if joy, instead of refuge or relief from heartbreak, is what effloresces from us as we help each other carry our heartbreaks? when we learn to sorrow together like that, we learn to love together too. Solidarity is born. Solidarity is the holy fruit of this kind of joy. So what I'm offering to you in this December episode of Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a show all about breaking down the supposed dichotomies between black and white, joy and pain, us and them, is some poetry written in solidarity with Palestine, that makes space for loss and love, guilt and grief, rage and hope. Some of these poems are my own. Some are written out of Gaza, or by others who choose solidarity with Palestine. All of these poems have a spiritual flavor to them, making use of religious imagery and language. Off of this podcast, on my other various social media accounts, I plan to keep sharing Palestinian poetry of all sorts in the coming weeks, so check those out too. It is a powerful act of resistance for Palestinians to create art while their artistic heritage is being denied and eradicated, while their poets are targeted for imprisonment and death, and while their oldest storytellers are sniped from watchtowers and it is a powerful act of solidarity for us to spread their art as far and wide as we can, and to use our art, if we can, to join them in imagining the future that must be, where every Palestinian lives free. In that spirit, let's begin with a poem by Puerto Rican Jewish poet and activist Aurora Levins Morales. I was deeply moved by an article on her website that I'll link in the episode notes and transcript in which she examines modern-day Israel through a zoomed-out lens of two millennia of antisemitism. Long before that state was founded out of the ashes of genocide, And at the expense of a colonized Arab people, she writes, Jews were the shock absorbers of Europe's class societies. Middle agents drafted into being the local representatives of distant and definitely Christian ruling classes who alternatively exploited and persecuted them while squeezing the lifeblood out of Europe's peasants and workers. People are often confused by anti-Semitism. They see many U.S. Jews accumulating wealth, moving up, gaining positions of influence, and they say, what oppression. The whole point of antisemitism has been to create a vulnerable buffer group that can be bribed with some privileges into managing the exploitation of others and then, when social pressure builds, be blamed and scapegoated, distracting those at the bottom from the crimes of those at the top. Peasants who go on pogrom against their Jewish neighbors won't make it to the nobleman's palace to burn him out and seize the fields. This was the role of Jews in Europe, this has been the role of Jews in the United States, and this is the role of Jews in the Middle East. Levins Morales explains these buffer roles in detail, and then she brings up an author who said of Israelis, given all they've endured, they should know better. She responds to this with an insight about trauma that I'll be carrying with me always. She says, Trauma doesn't make people into better human beings. Most of the time, trauma just makes people terrified and easier to manipulate. It makes starving Irish tenants fleeing a devastating famine willing to own slaves or homestead Native American land or police the ghettos they used to live in. It makes the formerly kidnapped and enslaved willing to set up shop in Liberia and hold their African kin in contempt. It makes the survivors of Hitler's final solution be willing to become harsh colonial masters, agents of U.S. oil greed and militarism, to bulldoze the villages of Palestinians to make Jewish settlements, torture and kill those who resist, and still insist they are the victims here. People who have faced destruction don't necessarily know better. End quote. While naming that trauma doesn't make people better, just leaves them terrified and grasping at any sense of security they can, Levin's Morales is also sure to note how Jews have always been disproportionately present in movements for social justice wherever they have landed. To her, fighting antisemitism means supporting Jewish integrity, the Jewish commitment to justice and compassion. Furthermore, solidarity with the people of Israel and Palestine alike depends on our clear stand against anti-Semitism in our own communities, because, she says, the central justification for Israeli militarism and the subjugation of Palestinians is the belief that Jews are alone in the world, that no one will fight for us, that the next time Jews are blamed and attacked, most of the world's people will stand by and watch. Only through all of us standing up to anti-Semitism and standing side by side with our Jewish neighbors, she says, can Jews feel secure enough to abandon the middle agent role and get the backs of other peoples, knowing that they also have ours. It is this vision of interdependence and mutual aid that Levins Morales brings into her poem, Red Sea. Here's an excerpt from the poem where she imagines the kind of liberation that came when Moses parted the Red Sea, happening today, but only if we can support one another. We cannot cross until we carry each other, all of us refugees, all of us prophets. No more taking turns on history's wheel, trying to collect old debts no one can pay. The sea will not open that way. This time that country is what we promise each other. Our rage pressed cheek to cheek until tears flood the space between, until there are no enemies left. Because this time no one will be left to drown, and all of us must be chosen. This time it's all of us or none. That vision of solidarity that binds us, that liberates us all, is what we work towards, but we are not there yet. Najah Hussein Musa, who was born in Jerusalem but fled to the United States due to Israeli occupation, names some of the things that are barring the way to justice and peace. One is the myth that Palestinians have no culture, that they are not a people group in themselves. Resisting this lie is one of the prime reasons to read and share Palestinian poetry and art. So let's read Bethlehem by Najah Hussein Musa now. 1. The Giver of Life, Al-Muhi They said our god was violent. I wondered who their god must have been, to think it wasn't a sin to kill flowers because they were a different kind. 2. The responder to prayer, al-Mujib. And when you burn fields of land and olive trees, what exactly does that make you? You are not harming us alone. You are harming the mother you claimed solely yours. Children do not burn their mothers to avenge their siblings. They love them despite being different. 3. Bethlehem and we were told we had no magic in our cities. We are no Eiffel Tower, nor Italy's Colosseum, but we are the minarets next to churches. We are human chains protecting godly prayers despite the politics around us. For if magic didn't live within us, it was born in our country. 4. Resist. I want my children to know that they, too, belong, even if they keep denying their existence, and they, too, can keep cities alive if they write about them. I deeply appreciate Naja Hussein Musa's Muslim Perspectum on Bethlehem in that previous poem. Meanwhile, for me as a Christian who has never been to the Holy Land, I cannot help it. That when I hear of Bethlehem, the first image that comes to my mind is God in human flesh, swaddled and sleeping in a manger. But just a few weeks ago, I saw a new image that now shares space with that old one in my mind. It's a photo from the separation wall built through Bethlehem, which restricts who can come and go within the city. In festive red and green with little pine trees bordering it, A graffiti message reads, Merry Christmas World from Bethlehem Ghetto. Let me share with you a poem I wrote in response to that graffiti on Bethlehem's separation wall. A voice cries out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. How do we do that in the present day? We break down walls that block his family's way. As Mary and Joseph draw near Bethlehem, a fence looms over them, some eight yards high, and soldiers watch from towers as they trudge, not straight into the city, but around to find the checkpoint, where they're turned away. We're only letting tourists in today. So Mary groans outside the barrier, no place to lay her newborn's bloodied head. And John the Baptist paints in green and red across that cold wall's surface. Shepherds, lo, Merry Christmas World from Bethlehem Ghetto. As I have been pondering what it would mean for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem today, I came across a poem about a different Jesus in Gaza who was killed on November 22nd. The poem moves me deeply, as it humanizes one of the thousands killed so far. We have to remember that on the long list of numbers and names of those killed, each of those names is an entire life, a person with dreams and jokes and friends, now gone. The poem, his name was Essa, was written by Basman Dharawi. A young poet in Gaza who is sponsored by the We Are Not Numbers project, which connects youth in Gaza and Lebanon to experienced mentors who help share and celebrate their stories. Here's the poem now. His name was Essa. Essa means Jesus. My friend was neither God nor prophet, but a rebel soul and humorist like Jesus. When Essa laughed, everyone laughed. I think joy was his gospel. He and I sang, set fire to the rain together, and danced wildly to sway. He loved Django Unchained, Essa had no chains. Once we were sleeping at our friend Ahmad's house, working on our graduation project. We read in high voices close to Uda's ears to wake him up. At one of our tashas, I picked on him for putting too much tomato sauce in the shrimp Zebdya. He ran after me and threw a pillow at me. Then we ate all the zebja and wiped sauce from our chins, laughing. Once he laughed at a poem I wrote about the tasha with a whole grilled lamb, a huge dream dish. I can see him now, sitting in heaven, nodding, laughing. As I have been reading Palestinian poetry, one of the most devastating themes that comes up over and over is resignation that the poet will die soon. So many of these poets imagine their own demise, knowing that it is all too likely they won't live to old age. Hiba Nada is one such poet, whose final social media post just hours before Israeli bombs killed her on October 20th said this, Each of us in Gaza is either witness to or martyr for liberation. Each is waiting to see which of the two they'll become up there with God. We have already started building a new city in heaven. Doctors without patients, no one bleeds. Teachers in uncrowded classrooms, no yelling at students. New families without pain or sorrow. Journalists writing up and taking photos of eternal love. They're all from Gaza. In heaven, the new Gaza is free of siege. It is taking shape now. As beautiful a vision as that is, a happy afterlife is not enough. Liberation of Gaza must come here and now. We owe that to Hiba Abu Nada, who was only 32 when she was killed. We owe it to the thousands of children already dead, the thousands more still alive and facing starvation. In honor of Hiba Nada, here is her last poem that she wrote and published just ten days before her death, translated from the Arabic. 1. I grant you refuge in invocation and prayer. I bless the neighborhood and the minaret to guard them from the rocket, from the moment it is a general's command until it becomes a raid. I grant you and the little ones refuge, the little ones who change the rocket's course before it lands with their smiles. Two. I grant you and the little ones refuge, the little ones now asleep like chicks in a nest. They don't walk in their sleep toward dreams. They know death lurks outside the house. Their mother's tears are now doves following them, trailing behind every coffin. 3. I grant the father refuge, the little one's father who holds the house upright when it tilts after the bombs. He implores the moment of death have mercy, spare me a little while. For their sake, I've learned to love my life, grant them a death as beautiful as they are. 4. I grant you refuge from hurt and death, Refuge in the glory of our siege, Here in the belly of the whale. Our streets exalt God with every bomb, They pray for the mosques and the houses, And every time the bombing begins in the north, Our supplications rise in the south. 5. I grant you refuge from hurt and suffering, With words of sacred scripture I shield the oranges from the sting of phosphorus and the shades of cloud from the smog. I grant you refuge in knowing that the dust will clear, and they who fell in love and died together will one day laugh. We must believe, we must imagine that those who are dead will one day laugh. But what comfort is that now, for those suffering through hell now? I turn once again to Rev. Munther Isaac, the pastor in Bethlehem whose sermon on October twenty-second questions where God is in this moment of extreme suffering. Here is where he lands. In this land, even God is a victim of oppression, death, the war machine, and colonialism. We see the Son of God on this land, crying out the same question on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you let me be tortured, crucified? God suffers with the people of this land, sharing the same fate with us. Beloved, in these difficult times, let us comfort ourselves with God's presence amid pain and even amid death for jesus is no stranger to pain arrest torture and death he walks with us in our pain god is under the rubble in gaza he is with the frightened and the refugees he is in the operating room this is our consolation he walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death If we want to pray, my prayer is that those who are suffering will feel this healing and comforting presence. It was this sermon, and the photos from Reverend Isaac's church of the nativity scene this year, which sets the infant Christ among the rubble, that caused the following poem to bubble up in me. Here is what I wrote about Bethlehem this year. This year, Mary is just one of many Palestinians failing to find a safe place to give birth. This year, Jesus is just one of many born into rubble. This year, the newborn Christ dies. His little body bombed and tossed aside into the growing pile. This time, Jesus never makes it to adulthood doesn't even make it the eight days to circumcision. He doesn't die a grown man, making a conscious choice to defy empire armed with naught but dreams of a world where all the nations live as one, where last are first and all war is done. No. This year, his newborn life is threat enough. His family's mere existence is rebellion enough to warrant eradication. Actually, it was then, too. Two thousand years ago, for empire always fears the one it grinds beneath its millstone. Back then, though, Christ's parents found safe passage into Egypt. Now, snipers shoot them as they try to leave the hospital that scarce had room for one more woman's labor cries. Stigmata are that much more chilling between an infant's eyes. And now, as then, some may blame Jesus' death on his own Jewish people, but resist this lie. Now, as then, the crime is empires, and those of us who would cast stones should ponder first what our nations gain from genocide. And God, if there is any hope at all to wrestle from the rubble, As churches all across the Holy Land close their doors to Christmas joy this year, a holy choice to mourn with those who mourn as Christ's homeland is made a massive grave, it's this. There are still children left to save. It's this. Not every olive branch has burned. It's this, the sacred promise of a god who dies whenever empires' outcasts die, that those cast down will rise. Palestine. Palestine, I swear we will not cease to shout your name until at last your streets sing with your children's laughter, loud and free. This episode almost didn't happen. Multiple times I stopped putting it together to ask, what good are words in the face of all this? It's the same question I had for Ross Gay about joy. What good news can joy speak against all this suffering? But every time I almost stopped, one poet or another took my hand and guided me forward. Dr. Refaat al-Arir, who was assassinated in an airstrike earlier this month, is one such poet who believed in the power of poetry to soar above the rubble he and his nieces are buried under, frail but graceful as a kite, slipping slyly past checkpoint gates to broadcast human stories to the world. Before his death, Adarir was a professor of creative writing and world literature at the Islamic University of Gaza, which was also bombed. Many of his lectures are available on YouTube. Around nine minutes into an introduction to poetry that I'll link in the show notes, Adarir discusses how art imitates life, helps us imagine what we have never experienced, so that we can work to make those dreams reality.
1: Now, how many of you, like, have you ever been to Jerusalem? Raise your hand if you've, been, if you've ever been to Jerusalem. Like we have 60 students here. We have one, two, probably three. That's, uh, that's very few of you. I've never been to Jerusalem. We're Palestinians, we're living in Gaza. We can't go to Jerusalem because of the Israeli occupation. But we love Jerusalem, right?
2: Yes.
1: We love Jerusalem because of what it means to us. We've never been there. But believe me, when you go there, you will feel that you've been there hundreds of times. In literature, Jerusalem is back to us, comes back to us. It's true that there is suffering, there is pain, there is occupation. And that's why Tamim al barghouti as a Palestinian poet, as a young Palestinian poet, I think is, is doing a great service to the Palestinian cause and the Palestinian struggle. When you read Tamim or you listen to him reciting his poem, Filqut, or other poems, he brings you a lot, he takes you to Jerusalem. You live Jerusalem. He takes you back to it. You liberate it for just a little bit of time. And if there is hope, if you can imagine uh, a free Palestine, free Jerusalem probably, you will work towards that. And the same thing applies to occupied Palestine. We've never been to other parts of Palestine because of the Israeli occupation. But we've been told so many times by by our parents and grandparents, especially our mothers. They've been telling us stories about Palestine in in the past, the good old days, how. Uh, Palestine was, you know, all uh, nice and beautiful, unoccupied, unraped. Our homeland turns into a story. In reality, we can't have it. We don't have it. But it can turn into poems, into poetry, into literature, into stories. So our homeland turns into a story. We love our homeland because of the story. We love our homeland because of the story. And we love the story because it's about our homeland. And this connection is significant. Israel wants to sever this relationship, for example, between Palestinians and land, Palestinian and Jerusalem and other places and cities. And literature attaches us back, connects us strongly to Palestine, creating realities, making the impossible sound sound possible.
0: I pray that at least one of these poems moved you to keep speaking out about Gaza, to investigate the truth for yourself, to delight in Palestinian culture. Above all, I pray that poetry can continue to teach us to imagine Palestine free. In a poem in 2011, Ibtisam Barakat wrote of the urgent need to imagine such a thing. She wrote about asking middle school children across Palestine, what will you feel when the occupation is over and Palestine is free? Her words continue, they complained they could not imagine that freedom. There were too many hostile images that came at them, soldiers, checkpoints, tanks, and many fears. And when I said freedom can happen only if you imagine it first, vividly, And that imagining our dreams is not a luxury, but the first step toward them? That it requires resistance, too, of all the hostile images inside? At that point, the children closed their eyes with heartbreaking child defiance and began an inner fight for the feeling of freedom in themselves. Barakat's own dream is that one day, when she asks Palestinian children again about the occupation of the past, that is what they can't imagine anymore. That they cannot imagine being anything but free. God, move us to help make that dream reality. God, let it come soon. One last piece before we go that prayerfully imagines such a future. I rewrote one of my favorite Advent songs, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, to center Palestine's plight. My hope is that my revision also removes the supersessionist tone of the original lyrics, which depict the Jewish people as living in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear, perpetuating the idea that Jews' relationship with God is incomplete because they didn't accept Jesus as their Messiah. Such anti-Semitism does nothing to foster interfaith relationships, nor to bring about our mutual liberation and flourishing. May our worship songs plant in us a deep desire for justice and spark our action towards a future where all peoples, all religions, live in mutual relationship and respect. Finally, my thanks to my friend, the Reverend Ainsley Emmerich, for singing this song for me. Here she is singing to close the episode.
2: Oh, come, oh, come, compassionate divine, and ransom captive Palestine, that mourns with tears that will not be soothed, till empires, fallen nations' hearts are moved. Rejoice, rejoice, God's justice is at hand To liberate the people and the land O come, O bright and ever-burning star Bring Gaza comfort from afar Dispel from her the shadow of death that murders dignity and chokes out breath. Rejoice, rejoice, God's justice is at hand to liberate the people and the land. Oh, come, O wisdom, from on high, take up the outcast's cause, the captive's cry. Guide us to build your kingdom on earth, where all faiths flourish and the last are first. Rejoice, rejoice, God's justice is at hand to liberate the people and the land. O come, O King of peace and justice, break. All weapons down and from them plowshares make. Let all tears dry, all peoples respond. We are each other's dignity and bond. Rejoice, rejoice, God's justice is at hand. To liberate the people and the land.